I'm going to read the collect for the second Sunday of Advent today, which I completely love and adore. The Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I love that collect. And, and one of the reasons I love that collect is that I, I think more and more about it. This, you know, people don't think about inwardly digesting Scripture anymore, do they? I don't think they, I don't think they have in quite some time. Uh, but it's this idea that, uh, like eating a, a great feast, uh, you, 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 your stomach uh, takes it in, Right? Um, this is a kind of knowing that is foreign to modern people. Um, you know, when we think about how we know things, the epistemology is what the philosophers call it, um, we, we tend towards uh, these kind of more modern ways of knowing things, right? I know it because I can see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, all the rest. Um, there's kind of a perspectival knowing. Um, but, but the highest form of knowledge... Uh, according, or the highest form of knowing, according to philosophers, is, is participatory knowledge. It's that you, you, uh, you have direct contact with uh, these sort of eternal things, right? And, uh, and you have a kind of participation in them and thereby come to know them. Um, but it's not in a way that you can describe easily with words. Um, because here's the thing. Uh, scripture is actually meant to take root in the soul and give us a kind of knowing that can't be uh, easily written down. Um, so it's interesting that the written word of Scripture gives us a knowledge that can't be written. Why? Because it's the knowledge of God, right? So this is, a, this is quite a, an important thing. I think that there's a, a way in which people miss this now. Um, so I wanted to kind of give you that. The, and the other reason I bring that up is that uh, just as Scripture has a kind of real presence, and this is something that Hans Borsma has written about recently, which I just completely adore this, this way of thinking about things, that Scripture has a, a real presence. When we talk about the sacraments, we'll talk about real presence as well. That the presence of God is working in not only the reading of Holy Scripture, but working in the sacraments, um, which also imparts a particip participatory knowledge, which again is the highest form of knowing. Um, and, and let me just say a little bit about that, right? If, uh, well, this happens in marriage, doesn't it? Some of you aspire to be married. Some of you are married. Um, there's a way in which a husband knows his wife and a, and, a, and a higher way in which a wife knows her husband, of course. I don't want to say otherwise. Um, and, and, and what's that kind of knowing? Well, surely you know about your husband. You know where he was born. You maybe memorized his social security number. You maybe have all those kinds of things that you know. But you know more than that, Right? You know, uh, you know because you've, you've, you've spent time with him and you have, uh, you have a knowledge that actually exceeds the kind of, um, of uh, factual knowledge. Um, and indeed, in the deepest, well, one of the deepest parts of marriage, um, you know things that virtually no one else knows, right? Um, you know how he looks naked, right? You know <laughs> all those other things. Um, and, and that's a kind of knowing as well. Um, and you know the feel and the smell and all of that, but, but you know something even deeper than that. Um, so, 
That's the kind of knowledge that I want to kind of focus on today when we talk about the sacraments. So we're moving forward in the catechism. We've done the section concerning sacraments, what is a sacrament. Um, and remember that uh, we've, we've mentioned these two sacraments, which we often call dominical sacraments. Um, and the reason they're called dominical uh, is that they're, they're directly commanded by the Lord to be kept. Um, they're also commanded by the apostles to be kept as part of this uh, handed-on tradition. And in fact, both of the sacraments, uh, the, the ba- baptism and the Lord's and the Eucharist, are given in that very um, uh, clear traditional language in Scripture. What I received from the Lord, I passed. I, I, I gave also to you. Right? Uh, Paul uses that language uh, about the Eucharist, and um, and of course, Jesus in the Great Commission commands this. Uh, commands baptism to be administered. Um, So those two uh, are understood in Anglicanism to be generally necessary to salvation. The 1662 Catechism, which was was taught to little kids, was something like this. Um, You know, a little kid, what's your name? And the kid responds, Joey. And and you say, you know, Joey, who gave you your name? They say, my parents and godparents. Um, when, I, when I was baptized. I'm giving you the paraphrase of it. Um, and then later on, they ask, you know, how many sacraments are there? And the, and the little kid's supposed to respond, two only as generally necessary to salvation, which, of course, is a great example of Anglican fudge with nuts, um, because is it only two, full stop, or is it only full comma as generally necessary to salvation? Well, some have taken it to mean only two, and, and others can read English and know that it means only two as generally necessary to salvation. So, so the, the answer is that there are more, but, but uh, these two are generally necessary to salvation. And what does that mean? Well, um, this, is, this is kind of a grand question that gets asked, and it's a big important question because, um, you know, uh, look, the reality of it is that whatever God can do through a sacrament, He can do any way He wants to because He's God and fully powered, has, the, has all the power in the universe to do whatever He wants. Um, and so, it's to say that uh, whatever can be affected through a sacrament can be affected in any other way. Um, I mean, the reality of it is that God could use a car accident to the same effect as baptism. Um, God could use… Uh, could use, you know, milk falling from the sky as baptism if he wanted to. Uh, and, and the reality of it is that uh, people often miss this. But generally necessary uh, means that um, uh, without respect to the specifics, right, without respect to uh, wide differences within a given, and I'm going to use a philosophical word, wide differences within a genus, right, of people, God pours out um, his life upon those who are baptized, upon those who receive the Eucharist. He pours out salvation on them. Um, and is it possible that some might not receive that? There's a, there's a kind of idea called an obex in, uh, in, in, in sacramental theology, which is that God does it, and you've done something horrid to block it. <laughs> it has to be absolutely horrid. It has to be like, oh, I'm getting baptized, but only as a show, you know, or, um, or uh, you know, and something, and we, we struggle to even think about what these might be because they're so out of the ordinary, right? So, what's that? An obex, yeah, O-B-E-X, yep. And, and 
you know, sacramental theologians don't even bother to talk about it very much because it's such a strange idea, right? It's, it's a very odd thing, and we can't even, we don't even really know what such a thing would be, right? It'd be something on the order of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, right, would be the idea that, that you've so vastly undermined salvation through something really awful. I mean, like, like basically showing up to be baptized and saying that this is the work of Satan while you're doing it. I mean, it would be something like that. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, doesn't often happen. But this generally, these general terms, right, apply. It's, and the, the example I use is that, and I used this last week, was that um, when I was about to graduate from A&M, I, I did a, a, a degree audit, and it came back negative, right? You don't have enough credits to graduate. And, and I did a little inspection on that and found that I had not taken enough international credits, which was a surprise to me because I was enrolled in my second international credit, which was martial arts, peoples, and cultures, um, which if that's not an international credit, I don't know what is. And, and uh, well, so I, I went to the undergraduate programs office and I basically staged a sit-in for about the whole morning until the, the program director would see me. And when she finally did see me, um, she said, you know, just go back and check your, uh, check your degree audit in a few days. It should be taken care of. When I did, I found that I had received credit for a class I never took, a uh, graduate-level class. So, you know, <laughs> that was kind of fun. Um, but, but do you see how this, how this is? As a general category, there were only some classes which were acceptable as international credits. But someone who had the power could change that. Um, and, uh, and so that's to say generally. And I think that, that really does apply, that, that there's something wrong when a Christian does not receive baptism, right? Something out of the order and something you know, not, not, not quite right. Um, and uh, so that's something we, just, we could just say. Um, and, and I would also say that, uh, that in the ordinary course of things, these sacraments are necessary to our salvation in a deep way. Um, so, let's, let's get moving. Baptism, on page 57 of the Catechism, uh, starting with question 126. What is the outward and visible sign in baptism? The outward and visible sign is water in which candidates are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, the outward and visible sign, remember a sacrament has two parts, the outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. Now, Anglicans believe that uh, that uh, the sacraments are effectual signs of grace, which means that, um, that uh, although you might receive that same grace in some other way, um, we actually hold that it's through the, out, through the gift of the outward sign that God works this interior or inter, um, 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 inward grace. Um, so the sign actually does the thing, um, which is uh, a different way of thinking about signs than most of us are used to, right? Because for most of us, um, sign uh, means that it, it sort of uh, indicates something as a, as a kind of uh, image or symbol. Um, but that's not the, uh, the ancient meaning of the word sign. Uh, most of the time people understood that signs actually um, lead you to participate in the thing signified. <laughs> Um, so this is an amazing difference because we've sort of changed the whole um, ontological uh, landscape, right? You, you consider it for a moment. Did anyone study Plato's Allegory of the Cave? Okay, so you know, you know the story of the Allegory of the Cave. People are chained to a wall, and all they see is the projection of shadows upon the wall that's opposite them. And uh, this is Plato's, 
I mean, this is at the heart of Plato's thought, if you know it. Um, of course, you know, high school English teachers or uh, whatever they are don't, don't usually do a good job of this. Um, although Baylor grads, I'm sure, do a much better job of it. And, uh, and, um, but the idea is that what we see in the visible world is but a projection and indeed a fairly poor one of the, the real thing. So, so whatever we see is not the thing itself. We see a projection of the thing itself. So the thing is something bigger, right? Um, uh, so, and, and the idea in the ancients is that we live in a world of forms. Um, the, the forms are, are, uh, um, are, are much greater. And, and so, but, but it's by the visible things that we participate in those forms. Okay, so this is, this is to say that, that there's, a, there's a world of participation, and Plato is actually one of those who believes that participatory knowledge is a thing, and it's powerful, and it's good. Um, so you can know things that are beyond what you can see and touch and taste and feel um, through the visible, but it's, it's through that participation that you actually come to know the things that are. Okay. Well, Paul uses similar language throughout his writings um, because I'm convinced that Paul is probably something in terms of his uh, philosophy, which uh, it's hard to think of someone like Paul as a philosopher, but I actually think that's probably quite right. Um, actually, most people have believed for a long time that, that, that philosophy and theology are like, uh, you know, well, joined at the hip, really. Uh, and, and the reality of it is that they are. You have to think about philosophy in order to think about um, about God. Uh, so anyway, I'm going on too long, but the outward sign of baptism by which this participation is affected, um, it's not just getting wet, right? It's not just a participation in water. Um, it's a participation in the very life of God. Um, so what is being said here is that through this outward sign, um, the person is being, and quite literally, dipped into the Trinity, um, is how I would put it. Um, what, and and where, do we, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, we see it all over the map. Uh, it's, it's contained in, in uh, what, what Jesus says, um, you know, about, uh, about um, uh, being born of water and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's certainly contained in the writings of Paul. You know, look, look at Romans 6, and, and Paul is giving a rationale for uh, his answer to the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says in Greek, my favorite word in Greek, meganoito, which is something like, heck no, and maybe a bit more coarse than that. Uh, and, uh, and, and then he says, how should, you know, it, he basically, he's, he says, uh, do you not know is that, is, that as many of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized also into his death? And then he asks, if we've been baptized in a death like his, we will certainly be raised in a resurrection like his. Um, so for Paul, this isn't just some sort of like, uh, uh, how should I put it, um, a, a kind of farcical play acting of being, uh, of being buried with Christ. It is being buried with Christ. Um, and so that's, that's a really key, key point to be made. I think that, um, you know, Part of the issue is that many of you grew up in, in, um, in churches which, you know, despite their traditionalism, were hopelessly modern in that sense and had no room for the kind of uh, phenomenon that, that uh, ancient people believed happened on a regular basis. Um, they just live in a world where lots of things happen. Um, so that's just a kind of thought there. Uh, but, but I want to say as well that it's not just water that's the outward invisible sign in baptism, it's the words as well. <laughs> 
The words matter to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, there was a, a bit of an interesting controversy in the, in the Roman Catholic Church last year that I, I think is fun to note. Uh, this priest, as it turns out, had been baptized and his parents in the early days of VHS had taken a video of it. And he watched this video and he realized that um, uh, the priest had said, instead of I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he had said, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and there was a bit of a freak out there because he being well-trained in the, in the canonical kind of things said, oh, geez, my baptism might not have been valid. And so he went to the bishop and the bishop basically conditionally rebaptized him, conditionally ordained him to both orders and sent him on his way. But it's a funny story because uh, the, there is a long tradition of being very tied to those words as, as clearly what is indicated. Now, I'm not quite such a, a, a dinosaur on that as to say, well, it has to be in this way. I mean, I think intent matters, but, but it is to say that, that, um, that changes to the form of baptism might possibly change what's going on. And so I think that's a really key thing. Go ahead. Yes. So, well, that's, that, this is fun. I don't even think that the uh, catechism deals with this. So who can baptize? Well, uh, the fathers have wonderful positions on this. And they say, well, first, it should be the bishop. Uh, second, it should be a priest. Uh, a deacon, if, they ha- if you have to. And, uh, and some of the lists say something like, you know, and I don't mean this to be offensive, but they'll say like, you know, uh, you know for all they know, someone who's not even a believer can baptize someone. Um, which is an interesting and telling thing, right? Because they don't, they don't say, like, it's the faith of the one who performs the baptism that rubs off on you. Um, it's, it's the act itself. And so there are actually historical things where, um, for instance, uh, uh, people have asked a Muslim to baptize them. And the Muslim says, I'll do it. <laughs> because here we are, you know, marooned at sea, and you want to be baptized, and so we'll take care of that. Uh, but in the, in, the, in the prayer book, there are instructions given for emergency baptism by lay people, and, uh, and they're given quite clearly that, uh, that, um, that, the, uh, that in an emergency situation uh, with either an infant who, whose parents would like this child to be baptized or with a, uh, someone you know, who's dying and asked to be baptized, um, this, gets, uh, this is done and uh, entered into the parish record. So it's uh, quite a thing. In fact, a, a wonderful story that I'll tell is uh, I had a parishioner in California who, whose mother was a very ardent Buddhist, and, uh, and she was a diehard you know, Chinese Buddhist, and she refused to hear anything about the gospel until she was on her deathbed. And her son had been witnessing to her this entire time, <laughs> just this like last hope. Well. Uh, she started to get dementia so badly that she was very rarely lucid. But uh, one Easter morning, they were praying with her, and she had this kind of sudden burst of lucidity, just completely out of the blue. And, uh, and my friend Randy shared the gospel with his mother, and his mother with complete lucidity. I mean, this is attested to by numerous people, said, yes, I'm, I'm ready. And she professed Christ as Lord, this is Easter Sunday, if I hadn't said that already, in the morning. And, uh, and he thought, God, we should call Father Nelson. He's probably busy. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> and, and so he, he just baptized her right there in the room. And I came by to see her uh, afterwards, but she had already died. Um, so she was baptized and died 
I think an hour later, but I entered it into the parish register because that's what you do. I mean, I, and I noted the place and the time and who did it and all those things. Um, and uh, that was that. So, uh, you know, these things happen. And, and uh, I've known many friends who, um, you know, know NICU nurses. And, and a lot of NICU nurses are a little shifty about this. They, they go around baptizing babies. <laughs> Just for good measure, right? Uh, and, uh, and sometimes they're a member of a parish and, and they'll ask their priest to register all those baptisms, you know, uh, which is quite funny. Um, you know, but the parents almost you know, rarely know that, so it's kind of an odd deal. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't quite espouse that. I mean, I think... You need to know that uh, when we talk about infant baptism, I'm, I'm quite the, the curmudgeon on this. I think that parents of the child need to be members of the church, and they need to be very serious about this at the very least. So just kind of keep that in mind. All right, should we move on? I mean, I think just so you know, like, that, that's the idea, right, is that, uh, you know, unlike when we get to the Eucharist, uh, baptism is of such a necessity that you don't want to be waiting around for a priest, um, and so, so that's the teaching there. Um, I should note one more thing, which is that in the, in the ancient church, um, catechumens who desired to be baptized uh, would often be martyred, um, and they would also often die before they could be baptized. Um, they would be on the list to be baptized, but they would not, you know, they'd sort of die before Easter. Um, and so two ideas were floated, and I think they're quite good, which is um, the, either the idea of baptism by blood which is that in the ordinary course of things, you know, you're baptized and then, then maybe you're a martyr later. Uh, but, but in this sense, the martyr's blood is accepted as a kind of baptism. It's a kind of way of saying, well, you weren't baptized sacramentally, but, but your martyr's death stands in as, a, as, a, as an image of, of um, God's grace being given to you, which I think is exactly right, right? Your participation in the, in the crucifixion and death of Christ is affected through your martyrdom, right? Um, and then the other one is just baptism by desire, that, that your desire is a stand-in uh, for this because you've already essentially asked God for it and God has given it um, in that sense. So, you know, that's kind of in that, you know, exceptions to the generally necessary rule, and that's exactly right. You just say, well, yeah, of course there are going to be exceptions. That's what generally necessary means. All right, so we move on to the inward and spiritual grace. What is the inward and spiritual grace given in baptism? The inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and new birth to righteousness through union with Christ and his death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God. But in baptism, through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I am made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir. Um, so there's quite a bit going on here, but the first is that uh, is the first grace given in baptism is a death to sin and a new birth to righteousness. Um, Paul speaks uh, quite a lot about this, how, um, you know, this, this death to sin that's affected by being joined to Christ in his death and resurrection um, brings about not only death to sin, but a new life of righteousness. Um, so he not only asks in Romans 6, you know, how shall we who died to sin continue it any longer, um, but also speaks of, of this new birth. Uh, and, of course, we also see this in John chapter 3, um, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And, of course, you know, I love the story of Nicodemus because it's, it's actually the whole story of Nicodemus is a story about baptism. Um, you'll remember that, that Nicodemus in chapter 3 is coming to Jesus by night with a question. And the question is, is um, uh, you know, essentially about eternal life. And Jesus says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit. 
And of, and of course, Nicodemus asked, well, you know, how do I get this done? Do I go back into my mother's womb and be reborn? And uh, some of you may know this, that there are some uh, hippie types in California that practice rebirthing rituals. Um, the idea is that, you know, birth is a very traumatic thing, and you probably experience trauma through your birth. And so in order to uh, sort of get this straightened out, you have to go through a rebirthing ritual where you climb through some play tunnel picked up at Ikea and emerge a new person. Um, and the only reason I say that is that, that these, these, uh, this is kind of like a, a Jungian image for, uh, for rebirth. And, of course, the reason is that um, everybody's got an idea of rebirth. Um, you have to, uh, because the idea is that you're born only, only to die on the face of things. And that's not a very good thing, is it? So, so how, do you, how, do you, how do you change that? Well, you, you get reborn somehow or other. Um, and, uh, and this idea definitely winds up in Scripture because it's, it's the way of things. We recognize that being born simply to die can't be the way of things. It just, it's just an awful thing. Um, so anyway, the, the idea here in, in Scripture is that uh, Christ's sacrifice on the cross cannot just be a standalone thing that I don't participate in. It can't just be some sort of fact that I know or interiorize in my head. Um, I have to have knowledge of it, and I have to be intimately joined to it. I have to have fellowship with Christ's suffering and death. Well, how do I do that? Well, martyrdom would be a great way, right? But martyrdom is still not as good, in fact, as, as, a, as being baptized, uh, to be baptized into this death. Now, um, one of the things we talk about in Lent is, is um, John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance. It's very clear that ancient people had this, the ancient Jews had this understanding of, of baptism signing forth one's repentance, right? This idea of being baptized, washed with water. Uh, of course, words were not often accompanying that, but you would, you would sort of stand there in the Jordan River and say, I've done all these things, which, consider this for a moment. If you're a Pharisee, are you going to do that? public confession followed by baptism? No, because then you'd be like, well, I can't be a Pharisee anymore. That's, that, that, that ship has sailed. <laughs> I'm, I'm ritually impure and will always be. Uh, baptism is for, uh, is for, how should I put this? Well, less religious Jews who get religion. Um, it's for absolutely them, and it's definitely for uh, kind of Hellenists who uh, sort of desire to show their... Uh, their solidarity with the Jewish people and with, with, uh, with the God of Holy Scripture. Um, but that's it. It goes no further than that. And of course, other Jews have ritual washings, right, C complete throughout Scripture. Um, you have to wash in order to be uh, cleansed. But all of these come together in, uh, in the Christian understanding of baptism, uh, which is not just a bath, it's not just sort of like a commanded mikvah bath because you've become tainted by the world and you have to wash, and you'll become tainted again, and you'll have to get another bath. It's, it's that um, there's only one bath which can suffice, and it is, the, it is Jesus taking a bath in his death and resurrection. He, he goes down into the waters of death and, and emerges. Um, so that's, that's very much at play, um, and I want to make sure you see that. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Yeah. Right. So I, I think there's this way in which uh, modernism puts a giant gap between us and the things of God. I mean, just by necessity, right? We, we live in this world that's obviously not shot through with the presence of God, right? And if, you, if, you're, if you're very modern at all, that's sort of how you think about things, you know? The idea is, well, we don't really participate in the life of God at all. Uh, uh, God is way up there, and, and we're down here, and we sort of do our thing. I think there's another way in which we tend to say something like, um, uh, these things are far from us. Um, and uh, either historically we think that, so we think like, well, it was 2,000 years ago, what does it have to do with now, um, aside from just knowledge of a historical event. Um, participatory knowledge is, is quite a different thing when you get down to it. Um, and, and I was explaining this a little bit earlier, but I think before you walked in, that, that uh, participation involves a kind of knowing that goes beyond the written word, that goes beyond even sort of like being able to explain it. Um, it, it, it means that there was a kind of, well, to be true, it's, it's a bodily participation. Um, it actually happens to you. Um, the word that's used, uh, you know, for Scripture is, is um, uh, well, Colossians. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what is that language of? Well, you could, admit, you could imagine it as kind of like a garment, right? <laughs> putting on Christ as like a coat. <laughs> and, um, or putting on Christ as a, as a replacement skin uh, would be the other way to put it. I think the church fathers love the, the uh, they love to think about the skins that God prepares for Adam and Eve after their fall. Remember that? First they start with fig leaves that they sew for themselves and they make, I love aprons, or as one uh, English Bible puts it, britches. Um, and, uh, but they, they put these on, and, um, and of course, that's not good enough. Uh, God has to do something better for them, um, so he gives them skins. And he um, only knows where he gets them. Uh, but the fathers go on about this because they, they see this as a, as a sign that's signing forth baptism right? That whatever kind of salvation we try to appropriate to ourselves from sin, God does better and then does even better than that. And this idea of you put on Christ as a garment as comes in. Um, and that's a very kind of particip participatory knowledge, right? So it's, it's like you can't just go out and realize it. It's not sort of a rational exercise. Um, you, you pick it up. Um, you take it up, um, would be one way to put it. You know it, well, and part of it would be you know it because you've, I mean, here's, here's a great example too, is um, do you know, uh, do you know someone famous? We should probably have a little, this is kind of a fun like youth group exercise, like who knows the most famous person, right? In the, who's the person in the room who knows the most famous person? Let me sort of take a vote on it. It's like, um, and you might say, well, I, I know, I know, uh, I don't even know who it might be. But, but then, then, of course, the question is, well, how do you know them? Oh, I've read their books. Like I've listened to their music. Yeah, but that's, that's only a certain kind of knowing. You say that the deepest kind of knowledge, the deepest kind of knowledge is, no, I've gazed into their eyes while we drank tea together. Wordlessly. 
right? Would you not agree that that's a deeper form of knowing someone? Of course it is, right? <laughs> now, there are no words to this. It's a mystical experience, right? But that mystical experience is a real form of knowing um, because it's a participatory knowledge. Um, and so, uh, and, and of course, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it because, you know, how can, how can being dipped into water with some words be a kind of participatory knowledge of, of Christ's death and resurrection? Well, that's our problem because we're modern people and we don't think like that. But for ancient people, this is like the normative thing, right? Uh, you know, you go into the temple of Zeus and you're going to meet Zeus because the statue of Zeus is a hypostasis of Zeus. And you might say, well, how can I meet an invisible God? He's not invisible. <laughs> he has hypostases all around the world. You know, they're in temples, right? And you can go visit them. You can put them on your, uh, on your mantle if you want to. Um, so, so in the Christian understanding, um, to be dipped into, I mean, to be baptized is to be dipped into the life of God, basically, as shown forth in Christ's death and resurrection to have a, a participation in it. And this will be more clear as we get to the, as we get to the Eucharist, because that's another kind of participatory knowledge that Paul speaks directly about. Um, I'm kind of coming at it from a different angle this time, because I've been doing a lot of reading in sacramental theology, so it just, it just give me a bit of room to think about that. The other way to just say it is like, um, we have to expand our understanding of ritual deeply, um, because Here's the problem with, with the way a lot of people today see ritual. They say, okay, so I've done this like deeply symbolic thing, and yet the thing that it signs forth is still very foreign to me, right? So like a great example is we sing the national anthem at baseball games. Did you participate in the War of 1812? I would actually say you did. <laughs> That's why you're singing the song, right? Like, I think that the reason you sing the national anthem is to be reminded of the War of 1812. And that it doesn't occur to you when you sing the national anthem doesn't mean you didn't participate in it. You did. But I think for most people, they look at it and they go, oh, we sang the national anthem. It was nice. The, whoever was performing it did a great job, you know, and, and we, it was a little hazy around the middle part, but we got through it, you know, and that was it, okay? But... I think there's something deeper going on, actually, like way deeper going on. I don't, I don't think that human beings can, um, can undertake such rituals and not participate in the thing that they, that they, that they talk about. Um, you know, another, another example would be Thanksgiving, right? You know, can you go to Plymouth Rock and, and hang out with the Puritans? No, but you can, you can take part in an act of remembrance uh, that is a that's an act of remembrance that stretches back through the generations. I mean, to eat a Thanksgiving meal is to be with all those who've come before you as Americans, you know? It's kind of like, and if you're not an American, then you might have another tradition that you keep, and that's how you participate in that whole thing, right? Um, so, does that make, is that helpful? I mean, I think... Sure. Oh, you're doing it. No, 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 yeah, that's, oh, that's very foreign. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think the way that we talk about baptism is often difficult, too. We say, I'm going to get baptized. Or when it comes to communion, I'm going to take communion. Uh, we really need to use the language and be disciplined about this of receive. Um, 
And, and part of the reason is that, that, you know, I can't baptize myself, right? Now, you had asked that question, which I thought was very, I should have said this, you know. <laughs> the only person who can't baptize you is you. And lest you think that was, that, that's some sort of foreign thing, there were many uh, um, kind of um, cult religions in the ancient world that did practice self-baptism, and Christians didn't do it, um, which will tell you something. You're receiving this. Uh, also, in the ancient rites of baptism and, and in the rites today, you receive the faith in the form of the Apostles' Creed, which you recite back. Right? So you, you see this on Baptism Sundays at Christ Church. You know, do you believe in God the Father? I do. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Right? Um, that's not just asking you, do you believe or do you have this faith that you figured out? It's are you going to repeat back to me what you've been given, essentially? Um, not only that, but, but look at it. I mean, part of the rationale, or part of the thing that, that Luther says, actually, about baptism is this amazing line that he has where he says, you know, infant baptism actually shows us how gratuitous the grace of God is because it's poured out upon those who can't possibly merit it. Right? They're helpless, Right? That's what infant baptism shows us. It's an image of that. And, and in fact, they're as helpless as we are. Right? That's kind of the thing, is, is all of that. Um, and I'd also counter that. I mean, Tiffany, the, the reality of it is that throughout the church's history, uh, we've opposed all manner, of, all manner of Pelagian ideas, right? That you can save your. Uh, Pelagian, Pelagian, I'm watching too much Marvel Universe. Um, We've opposed Pelagian ideas, which are essentially that you can, you can sort of be good enough to save yourself. Um, of course, the other form of Pelagianism is semi-Pelagianism, which is kind of like, you know, just, well, if it's not that, then maybe, maybe a, a less uh, egregious form, which is, um, well, certainly I must take this, the first step. And the understanding that I would even say of, of adults being baptized, children being baptized, is that the reason is not because they sort of chose it or went and did it, but because God was actually pouring out abundant grace upon them leading up to that. Um, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. And this, this actually comes from Augustine, Augustine's understanding of his life. If you read the Confessions, you'll get a big healthy dose of this. It's like, he basically says, you know, as I was working my butt off to be condemned, you know, essentially, right, as I was fighting against grace, as I was trying as hard as I could to go to hell, right? He's really, he uses these kind of words. I mean, it's really amazing. Uh, God was working behind the scenes to save my butt. And how else could it be? And so Augustine has this very deep understanding of prevenient grace. It's grace that goes before you. Um, it's grace that, that precedes you. Okay? So that's a great image. You know, it's, I think it's the right image. Um, all of us should look at our lives and say, you know, God, I'd have been a complete mess had God not poured grace upon me, right? Um, so that's, a, that's an important thing, and I think, um, you know, certainly that, that's an image in baptism. I'd say that very clearly. Okay, we good so far? I know that's sort of a lot to, to take in, but um, I think it'll make more, more sense as we go forward. So I'm, a bo I'm born a sinner by nature, right? I mean, this is not new information. I know I'm a sinner, and if you don't know you're a sinner, uh, I've got some psychologists who would love to talk to you. Um, also, you know, try to make your confession coming in and saying, I'm not a sinner, um, and, and uh, we might be able to work on that a little bit too. Um, but, but the reality of it is that most of us are all too aware of our sinfulness. We know this, and we also know that ultimately 
um, our sin um, will kill us, not just physically, but spiritually. Um, we, we know that. That's not, that's, not complica- that's not a complicated thing to know, right? Um, I know that if I, and part of the thing, like, you know, our examples of this have to be more and more extreme, but, you know, the realization of many, many, many people is that, for instance, their addiction will ultimately kill them, right? If you go, if you really want to see human sin up front, go, go down to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It's open on every day of the week at noon down at the Triangle and just hang out, and, and you'll hear it every time. Like, I realized that I was going to die if I kept going in this direction, okay? So there you go. Um, and, and that's the reality of it. I will die. Um, and not just physically, but spiritually. I'll be separated from God. We know this. We know this about ourselves. Um, I'm born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism, through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I love this, right? This, is, this catechism is written to adults. It's written for adults. It's written for adults who have not been baptized, who are coming to faith for the first time, and, and, and they say this. In baptism, through faith in Christ. So is faith extraneous to baptism? Not at all, and we should never think it is, okay? So I want you to hear that from me as one who baptizes infants, that faith is not extraneous to baptism. It's essential to it. And you might say, well, how does that work with baptism, with baptism of infants? We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but, but, the, but the reality here is that faith is essential to it. Um, and, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is wrapped up in baptism too. Uh, think of the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost, uh, the, the people hearing his sermon, which is just like, you killed Jesus, you know, and, uh, and uh, God raised him from the dead. They say, what do we do? And, and, and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So he's quite clear about that. Um, I am made a member of Christ's body. So here the understanding is that by t- participating in the uh, crucified and risen body of Christ through baptism, you become a member of his body, the church which is fantastic, right? That's the, that's the understanding. Um, and adopted as God's child and heir. So if you're born of God, what do you become? God's child, right? And an heir, therefore. Um, okay, and this is the very language of salvation, so I'll, I'll say that clearly too. Okay, what is required of you when you come to be baptized? Two things are required. Repentance, in which I turn away from sin, and faith, in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and trust the promises that God makes to me in this sacrament. So again, we're talking about the normal course of events, and, um, and I should say that, you know, in the church's understanding of baptism, adult baptism is normal. Okay? I just want to say that really strongly. Like, to all of you former Baptists out there, adult baptism is normal. It should be normal. The problem is that Christendom sort of made it not normal. Um, and, you know, you get certain uh, privileges when you win. Uh, but, but such is not the case now, and uh, so I want to make that clear. Um, uh, if anything, when we talk about infant baptism and the baptism of children, we're talking about a dispensation from the norm. So I want to make that clear. But two things are required. Repentance. First, I have to turn away from sin. And this is actually in the baptismal rite itself, right? Do you renounce Satan and all his works? I renounce him. Yeah. So there are three renunciations. Uh, I love in Eastern Orthodoxy when someone is asked, you know, do you renounce Satan and all his works? I renounce them. And then you go, Puh! Like, 
<laughs> I really renounce them, right? I'm spitting uh, in that way. The other thing that happens is, and you'll notice we do this at Christ Church, whatever direction that is in Waco, no one knows. Um, don't try to figure it out. You'll have an aneurysm. Um, uh, we face liturgical west for the renunciations before turning liturgical east for the, for the, uh, for the uh, baptismal affirmations, which are, which are essentially the Apostles' Creed. Um, so you see how that works? You, you, you renounce evil, and then you turn. Well, what is the word repentance in the Greek? It's metanoia. It means doing a 180. Yeah, turning away, right? And you not only turn away from sin like a, perpen- like, like a 90 degree angle, it's a 180, right? Because it's not just turning away from sin, it's turning away from sin to God. So all of that is in the, is in the baptismal rite. Um, I should note as well that in the ancient church, you were asked to show up wearing dirty clothes on the, on the night of your baptism, that you had not, you were actually told, I love this, to not bathe at all for the 40 days of Lent. So you'd come just nasty, right? And, and, uh, and ready to be washed. Um, and, uh, and so you can only imagine the image, right? And, uh, and of course, after baptism, in many cases, you were kept in the church uh, for the 50 days following. You, you just took up residence. You lived there, like sleeping on the floor. And the reason was that um, it was kind of like what, uh, what um, pediatricians say, you know, that, that, the, that, the three, that the first three months of our life after birth are like the fourth trimester of pregnancy, it's like you're held close to your mother, and they were fed milk and honey in the church, and they would feast, and there were post-baptismal instructions every day. Um, and the idea was, before you go out into the world, um, you have to spend time with your mother, um, which is a beautiful image. Um, so this repentance was made very clear by 40 days of, of uh, filth and 50 days of being kept clean right, in the church, fed milk and honey. Um, it's, it's more time there than, than, in the, than, than out in the world getting filthy. Um, so all this is made very clear in, in those ancient rites. Um, and faith in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and trust the promises that God makes to me in this sacrament. Um, the uh, many baptismal rites, especially the Roman rite uh, until recently, have, have, have in the baptismal rite um, this, this question, you know, what do you ask of the church? And the answer is faith. I ask for faith. Um, so if you watch The Godfather, at the very end there's that baptism scene. Uh, the priest is actually uh, asking that question of uh, Michael Corleone, which is just a, it's a terrible scene. It's really, really disturbing. It should be disturbing. Um, so, but the, the reality of this is that um, uh, Faith doesn't, doesn't originate in us. And in fact, um, Christians have taught that all the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, actually are not things that we have innately. Like we're not born with it. Um, they're infused. They have to be because they're foreign to us as sinners. So the understanding is that actually not only faith is given through baptism, but um, now you might say, but I have faith before I was baptized. Well, yes, because God gave it to you, and that's why you're being baptized, so congratulations. But, but it's given in a deeper way, right, um, um, in this sacrament. 
Um, but yes, that faith in which you turn to Jesus Christ as, as Savior and Lord and trust the promises of God um, is, 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 is required. Um, and that's why, uh, and, and I think required sort of sounds very strange. We're not asking people to sort of subjectively have faith and repentance. Um, that's why it's laid out in the liturgy. You have to say certain things and mean them, right? And we sort of take it that you do say it, that you mean it, because you're not crazy, you're not a psychopath, and, you know, like, all of that is just sort of like, you say it, so you, you mean it, right? Um, and uh, we just leave it at that. Okay, we move on to why is it appropriate to baptize infants? Because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church, those who in faith and repentance prevent, present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith as their own. Okay, so the first uh, understanding that's there um, is that it's a recognition that they are members of the covenant community of Christ's church. Okay, so just kind of take it back a notch, okay, which is to say um, because a child is born in a Christian home with two Christians as parents means what? God has ordained it that they be born into that family, which is a, which is a member family of the church. Okay, so um, the, the best analogy I'd use for this is this happens today. When your child is born, they don't have their own insurance card. It's not like the hospital says, uh, hey, buddy, you know, we're going to need the kid's insurance card. They, they don't do that. They accept the mother's insurance as the child's insurance and the parent's insurance, really. Um, it's, it's a very similar kind of concept, right, is that um, the, what, what the child cannot provide for themselves, we provide. Okay. Um, of course, we do this sort of thing all the time, yes? I mean, it's like my little, you know, uh, 18, 19 month old, and she's, she's sweet as can be. But I don't sit there and say, um, you know, what do you think, Catherine? You want to take a bath tonight? They say, you're taking a bath. And she might go, no, I don't want to take a bath. And I was like, no, you're going to take a bath. Like, <laughs> this is happening. Um, and uh, as, of course, she gets older, that'll happen more and more. Um, but but the, the reality of it is that, that um, you know, children don't have the capacity to do those things. And so there's a kind of uh, dispensation given from the rule, right? As always happens. We do this stuff all the time, right? Can I ask, um, well, what I can't ask of someone, I sort of accept what they can do, right? So um, I've, I've actually baptized uh, people with severe mental um, uh, disabilities, right? Because I just say, well, they're only able to receive it in as much as they're able. Uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't alter God's ability to give it. Um, so that's, that's the kind of key understanding there is that um, this, is, this is how this works. Um, however, I think it's important to say as well, those who in faith and, re- and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith as their own. This is very key. In uh, the, the older prayer books, uh, the language is used of, um, of sureties. Does anyone know what a surety is? I, I guarantee you there's at least one person in this, in this building who knows what a surety is, but 
It's a kind of bond, yeah, yeah. So uh, if you ever hire a contractor to maybe like do your kitchen or uh, redo your bathroom, you need to check to make sure that they have something called a surety bond. And the surety bond is essentially this uh, insurance uh, product that allows them to buy a bond which means this, that in the case that they're incapacitated and can't do the work, someone else will have to do it. And so the insurance company says, okay, we will go and we will make sure that the job gets done and we'll pay somebody to do it. And we'll pay somebody more to make sure it happens immediately, right? So they get pulled off one job to do it there, right? Um, well, so what is a surety? It's, it's essentially to say, you're gonna be incapacitated, potentially, right? You bet that that's what's gonna happen. And, uh, and so someone else steps in to do it. And this is the reality of parents and godparents, is that um, when, I, when I've had my children baptized, I basically say, I'm doing this on behalf of my child until such time as they're able to do it for themselves. Okay. Well, we do that all the time, right? My kid can't sign up for insurance. My kid can't go buy groceries. I do all these kinds of things vicariously. Okay. Now, a wonderful argument for infant baptism was actually hatched at Christ Church, which I don't think I've ever heard before, and I've never seen it in the fathers, actually. Toby Coley, who's a wonderful rhetorician, uh, kind of saw a thread here, and he wrote a wonderful article about how baptism is always vicarious, and therefore infants should be baptized. His, 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 and he, was, he realized this. He was against it <laughs> until I was sort of teaching this section in the catechism, and he said, oh, now, there it is. Well, look, you can't save yourself. Right? You can't be crucified on your behalf and risen from the dead and sort of make it work. So what do you have to do? You have to participate in the vicarious action of Christ. Okay? So all baptism is vicarious. It's just a question of to what degree. Would you not agree with that? That's the reality. Okay? Um, one more argument that I put in front of you for infant baptism, and there are many, uh, is Luther's, which I just have come to really appreciate as of late. Um, Luther basically says, look, if infant baptism was wrong, we should never expect that a child who's baptized will ever become a saint or will ever have any kind of faith whatsoever because God will fundamentally reject it at such a level as to make sure it doesn't happen. <laughs> Which I think is a funny argument, but, but it's a good one, right? It says, if, if, it's, if it's an abomination to God, then why would you ever expect that it would ever work? And yet, what do we know? Well, it does work, right? Um, the fact that it doesn't shouldn't surprise any more than the fact that it doesn't when only 12-year-olds are baptized or only 14-year-olds are baptized. I mean, the reality of it is that many of you who are baptized at that kind of ripe age of 12 just know how that didn't work out very well either for a lot of your peers. Um, you know, because, look, I mean, I think <laughs> the rationale that we should not baptize infants but we should baptize 12-year-olds is absolutely insane, <laughs> okay? I'm just going to say it's just it's just completely wrong. If anything, we should baptize infants and should never baptize 12-year-olds, right? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> um, I'm just going to sort of, like, lay that one out for you. Uh, and it's all a crapshoot, right? Because, you know, look, you, you, you start off with a certain amount of power over your child that you, that you by nature, let go of over time, right? So, they're going to have that moment where they're going to have to kind of decide things, or they're going to they're be drawn to, to know these things. But my perspective on it is I'd rather that child grow up in the full identity of a Christian than not. And that's just where I'll leave it. I'd rather they grow up receiving communion. I'd rather they do all those things. And I'll tell you a very personal story before we close, which is that, um, and I'll, I'll answer your question. Um, 
one of my kids, you know, and a lot of my kids, they struggle with these things. And, and I don't tell stories about my children often, so don't repeat this, right, okay? Uh, but, but she was really struggling with her faith, and, and, um, and it was really hard to watch. And, and, and she said, you know, I'm just not sure if I believe. And I said, well, you know, uh, let's, let's talk about that, you know. And, but she was like, should I be receiving communion? And I said, probably not, actually. And so she absented herself from receiving communion. She would come up for a blessing. For months this went on. It was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking to watch this happen. Um, but I think a couple years ago at Easter, she came forward and received and I, I, was, I was a wreck because I knew what it meant. Um, but far better to have that experience where she sort of owns what's going on here than not. Um, and so, so that was a big thing. You know, for her, it was, it was, it was coming back to this and, and not um, you know, knowing that, that, uh, that God was always there for her. Um, so that's, that's where my chips are on this. Uh, I, I say, better to have your children grow up with, with substantial amounts of grace than not. Um, one last question, and then we'll kind of, I just want to give this one so we can move on to communion next week. What signs of the Holy Spirit's work should you hope and pray to see as a result of your baptism? I should hope and pray that the Holy Spirit who indwells me will help me to be an active member of my Christian community, participate in worship, continually repent and return to God, proclaim the faith, love and serve God and my neighbor, and seek justice and peace. So all these things are actually uh, not, not just implicitly in baptism, they're actually said in the rite, right? That you will, it's, it's prayed for that you'll be this kind of person. Um, and look, I will just say that the presence of Christ uh, uh, in, the, in the baptized believer through His Holy Spirit is what leads us to continued repentance, right? I mean, Paul talks about this. He says, you know, even when we don't know how to pray, who prays within us? The Holy Spirit. Um, and so, this is, a, this is and, and he goes on at length to talk about how the Holy Spirit is, is like the, the, uh, the down payment on our salvation. Well, think about it. If salvation is to live in the life of God, to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you bodily is salvation. Can we say that clearly? I think we can. Um, so, so that is to say that I think when we, when we experience these things normally in the Christian life, like, like membership in the Christian community of the church, uh, participation in worship, continual repentance and returning to God, that's just who we are. Like, it's not like an optional accessory. It's who we are. So if I've ever got someone who's saying, oh, I haven't been to church in a while, I'd say, that is a fundamental rejection of your identity, <laughs> It's not just sort of like, oh, I wish you would join because there's so many good things happening. No. Like, you are acting like a crazy person who doesn't know who they are. It's way worse than you'd think. Um, and so, I just want to say that. Okay, go ahead. Who knows, right? Should this happen? No, okay? I'll just say it shouldn't happen. Um, it does happen. But I've, I've, I've known many, many people for whom that was the case who somehow or other out of the din of life came to a deep faith later on in life and were not rebaptized because they'd already been baptized. Um, th that happens a lot. Um, and, and all I'd say is that, um, well, God is very faithful 
to keep his promises. Yeah? We shouldn't expect that it would be any other way. We should say, well, you know, of course it'll be that way. Uh, like, even, if, even if it's just like a, an odd thing that just happens, um, God is very faithful to this. Um, so I just say that, right? Um, and that, that's quite a wonderful thing. Um, well, here's one. I'll just tell a story. I've got time, right? Judy's not back there making faces at me right now? Okay, good. Um, I, I had a, a parishioner who was uh, baptized as an infant and never went to church ever again. Uh, it was the way it was. And uh, he married this wonderful woman um, later in life. They were both, widow- he was a widower, she was a widow, and, and uh, at, you know, 74 and 82 respectively, they got married. And uh, she was a Christian, he was not. Uh, and he said, you know, but I'll go to church with you because I've got nothing else to do. And he was drawn to repentance and drawn to the faith, and I catechized him. And, and ultimately, he was confirmed at 82 years old and changed his life. It was a beautiful story. I mean, it was an incredible thing. So that does happen. Um, another story that I'll tell you is um, I was, uh, after seminary, I walked the Camino de Santiago, this old, um, this old Spanish pilgrimage route. It's quite fun. You should go do it. Um, I met this guy while I was walking who uh, at, he was Belgian, and at 72, he was forced into retirement against his will. He was like, I love to walk. I've been a mail carrier my whole life, walked all day and all night, you know, all through the day and, and delivered mail. And, uh, and he said his wife kicked him out of the house because he was just moping because he was so, felt so useless. And, uh, and so he, he started in France and he walked all the way to Santiago de Compostela, which is 746 kilometers. And, uh, and he had uh, not been to church since he was a kid. Completely, I mean for all his life, had not gone. Well, the tradition when you enter the cathedral is to drop to your knees and crawl through the church. And he says that quite beyond, his, quite beyond himself, um, and I met him when he was walking his second Camino, which he'd walked from his front door of his house, so this is pretty funny. Uh, he was 74 at the time. Uh, he, he dropped to his knees and he crawled into the church, weeping. And he crawled to a confessional, where he made a confession. And he says, and he's told this to me, he said, I've been to Mass every day since. So does God use baptism? Does God use these kinds of gifts? Absolutely. Um, and it's in his time, right? Um, the first shall be last and the last first. It's, it's sort of to say, we don't know. Um, but I am fully assured that, that even if uh, our intentions were, were uh, we're evil, <laughs> even partly. God intends it for good. And so, um, now, having said all that, I have to warn you, we should not presume that that's the case. Um, but even if we do, we should take great, faith, take great comfort in the fact that God does still work. Um, so, thank you.